week's episode is brought to you by Support the Mountain's Herbal Parasite Cleanse. This formula targets the small and large intestinal tracts and larvae, the most broad-spectrum formula available today. 100% organic, formulated by Dr. Mikio Sanki, author of the Esoteric Acupuncture Series. For 10% off your first bottle, visit shopyogahub.com and use the coupon code CLEANSE at checkout. Hello and welcome to YHTV's Magical Medical Tour. Thank you for joining us today. I'm Christina Suzuma, and with me is our wonderful medical guide, Dr. Glenn Woolman. Hello, Dr. Woolman. <laughs> Greetings, Christina. <laughs> Greetings to you. And greetings, everyone. Welcome to Magical Medical Tour. I'm Dr. Glenn Wallman. I will be your host, along with Christina, as we travel through the healthcare galaxy in search of optimal health. And we have a very big topic today and a special guest, Dr. Alan Sugar, who is a specialist in infectious diseases. And we're going to be talking about uh, the Ebola virus, something that seems to be on the minds of a few people lately. Just a few? (laughs) (laughs) One or two. Uh, In case anybody needs to get in touch with us or has questions for Alan, how do they do that? Well, um, at any time during the show, even if you're listening to this as a recording, you can feel free to ask a question or make a comment simply by scrolling down on your screen and typing it into the comment box. Or you can give us a call and be sure, of course, to leave us your contact information. Um, Give us a call at 818 Let's talk. 818 Let's talk. So, those of you who are listening to this as a podcast, you know, remember just to give us a call and leave a question or comment, and we will be sure to share it with uh, our special guest or Dr. Woolman and get an answer right back to you. Thank you, Glenn. Uh, you're welcome, Christina. You know, this is very big in the news today, and I want to talk about Ebola. I just want to make a little statement for myself here. Uh, The Ebola virus has been around since the 70s, actually, but there's been a major outbreak in the last few months, and it's uh, infected and affected uh, people around the world, travelers and families and everything. And I just wanted to talk for a few minutes and just say that there there are so many amazing stories here. Many of them are tragedies. Uh, A two-year-old boy who gets infected and dies, and then a month later, his sister, his mother, and his grandmother die. The uh, families that are being wiped out, children are being orphaned, and we see uh, amazing, very sad stories of things going on and the devastation that happens even after somebody gets the virus. Even if they live in Africa, they're being shunned by other people. So there's a lot of tragedies going on here. But there's also some amazing stories, and, and I want to take a moment to honor some people. I want to honor all of the people that are the healthcare professionals, the doctors, the nurses, the volunteers, everyone that uh, wakes up every morning or every evening and goes to their clinic, goes to their uh, hospital, goes to their emergency department or urgent care, and know, knowing that they may face someone who's going to walk in that door, and not just with Ebola virus, but with, it could be the measles, or it could be influenza or tuberculosis. There are many infectious diseases out there. Right now, we're just looking at the Ebola virus and hearing uh, so many devastating stories about this. But we also hear about, uh, now that it's in this country, we hear about the 
the nurse or the person that let someone go, sent them home, didn't follow a protocol, all of these things. And I just want to say that these people, they're human. They make mistakes. And sometimes it isn't their mistake. Sometimes it's the protocol that was given to them at a hospital. And we're going to talk about that a little bit today. But these people, no matter what, they know that they're going to work and may be exposed to uh, a virus or something else that may actually kill them. And yet they still go to work every day. Doctors and nurses in Africa now, uh, clinics and hospitals have actually closed because the doctors and nurses have died at those hospitals and there's no one else. And the, and the doctors and nurses from this country and other countries that are going to Africa to spend time and help all of these people. So I want to just honor all of the people in the healthcare profession. And that's why we call this magical medical tour, because those people are magical and the things that they're doing are magical. Mm. So I would just like to say, whenever uh, you're listening to this uh, as a podcast or watching it as a video, take one moment and take a deep breath. And as you take a deep breath in, just think about all of the tragedies that happened. And as you let that breath out, just think about all of the wonderful, great people that are honoring us and everyone else by trying to protect humanity. Mm. So I'm going to take a deep breath, and then we will start our show. Mm. <sighs> Beautifully said, Glenn. Thank you so, so much. I think that's that's really wonderful. And it was very interesting the other day because my son came home and said that they had to do their next project on a hero. And they were going through all the different people that were heroes. One thing that they missed was doctors. And I had to explain to him how doctors every day risk their lives for all of us. And isn't that interesting that, that for some reason, these people who save our lives, <laughs> who go from one to the next, are forgotten, as you say. And, and I, I think what you've just said has just capped it all. Thank you so much. Uh, it's interesting. I mean, this, and you're very welcome, man. The, the nurse that got infected here from the uh, index patient uh, from Liberia, this was a young nurse who just graduated maybe within the last three years. She's in her 20s, and she just started in her career and she now has a disease that has the potential to kill her. Hopefully it won't. But my guess is that when she gets better, she's just going to go right back to work. Mm. And all of these providers, the first providers, the paramedics, the fire people, the nurses, everyone, they're all part of this magical system that takes care of people. So, And we have someone today who is someone like that. This is Dr. Alan Sugar, who is an internal medicine doctor, and his specialty is infectious diseases. He's a former professor of medicine at Boston University School of Medicine. He's the director of an HIV-AIDS program uh, and infectious diseases in uh, Cape Cod. He's a writer. He's been the leader, co-author of over 100 articles and papers. He's written in uh, a number of books, chapters, and he's written on his own. He's an invited speaker, usually on microbiology and fungal infections. And presently, he's an attending physician at Sansom Clinic and Cottage Hospital in Santa Barbara. He also has two patents out, which I think is very interesting uh, cool. in the 
Yeah, in the, <laughs> in the medical field. So at this time, I would like to introduce Dr. Alan Sugar. Welcome to Magical Medical Tour. Good morning. Thank you. Hello, How are you doing Dr. Today? Sugar. Thank you so much for honoring us on our show. My pleasure. Alan, as the medical guide, I usually like to give our viewers and audience uh, a path that we're going to take. So for a moment, we're going to learn a little bit about you, uh, what you're about, why you went into medicine, and a number of things like that. Then we want to find out, as always, how how someone, in, if they're interested in becoming an infectious disease specialist, how they would go about doing that. And then I want to get right into it. I want to go through the process of Ebola. I want to Hopefully, by the end of today, Christina, who represents every person in our, in our uh, communications here, <laughs> will have a great understanding of what the virus is, uh, how, how it gets transmitted, uh, the signs and symptoms, what people should do, what are the treatments and protocols that are being done in hospitals now, and just have a great understanding of this so that maybe we can, instead of everybody panicking have knowledge and with that knowledge we'll have power and that will ease things off and so that that's where i want to go today how's that sound to you sounds like a good plan excellent so let's start let's start learning a little bit about you you're a healer what the how why when did you decide to become a healer what were the influences well as far back as i can remember i always wanted to be a doctor uh probably um in my early years, my uh, father was a general practitioner, and the, ha the office was attached to the house, uh, and I saw the kinds of hours that he worked, but also the kind of uh, uh, impact a person could have on the lives of uh, a lot of people on a daily basis. So as far as back as I can remember, that's what I wanted to do, uh, not realizing that by the time I would uh, go to college and then medical school, medicine would be... Uh, pretty much different uh, then, which was in the 1970s, um, compared to when I was growing up. Uh, but uh, it's evolved to a totally indistinguishable career uh, at this time. Mm. You know, when, when doctors make a decision to go into a specialty, they don't worry. A psychiatrist doesn't worry when they're treating a, a paranoid schizophrenic that they may catch their paranoia and their schizophrenia. Uh, a cardiologist treating someone in a cardiac arrest does not worry that they're going to catch that. But in your specialty, it's one of the very few specialties that you actually are putting yourself at risk every time you see a patient. It may not always be for something deadly, but it's certainly just the concept of infectious disease. <laughs> What brought you to go into infectious disease as a specialty? Yeah, certainly I never really, uh, that never crossed my mind when I made a career decision uh, mm -hmm. that uh, this could be dangerous work. And in large part, in 99.99% of the time, it really uh, isn't as long as you understand what you're, what you're dealing with. Uh, but I was really drawn to the, uh, to, to the field uh, from from a scientific point of view, it was a really interesting um, uh, area where not only did I have to worry about the person, but I'd have to worry about what was invading the person to cause the illness. Um, and uh, when all this was said and done, the vast majority of infectious diseases 
were curable. So as opposed to going to other specialties where uh, you were dealing with people uh, that were towards the end of their life for various reasons, um, uh, infectious diseases allowed me to, to affect cures. And then the other thing is that there was never a possibility of a dull moment. Uh, it was, uh, I'm not really restricted to dealing with hearts or lungs or kidneys, uh, but uh, infections all over the body. Mm. Um, and uh, at the time I went into the field, I never really realized that there were going to be new infections um, uh, virtually every year. And right when I started, uh, as I finished, uh, actually during my fellowship, uh, HIV came on the scene. And then uh, we had all sorts of other epidemics, uh, SARS, uh, pertussis, old diseases that we never saw before, uh, diseases that were thought to be stamped out, like syphilis, that are coming back uh, with a vengeance now. Um, and then these new things, uh, uh, post 9-11, we were worried about anthrax. Uh, we've had Ebola now. And every uh, couple of weeks, it seems like it's something else that we have to uh, bring to the forefront of our consciousness. Hmm. What's the most gratifying part for you in practicing? Uh, in other words, where's the magic? Well, the magic is uh, in there's there's all these new things to deal with, and intellectually it keeps us uh, honest. I mean, we we have to work to keep up uh, with the latest events, and then apply that uh, book knowledge to the patients that we're seeing. Um, and then the magic comes when you make the diagnosis, select the right treatment, and you can cure people that um, would otherwise be in big trouble. Mm, that's a really good point. That is kind of magical, I think. So for those people that are interested in becoming a physician and an infectious disease specialist, what kind of training do you have to go through? Well, uh, there are various pre-med courses in college, and once you make that decision um, and get into medical school, uh, that's about four years of your time. Uh, following that, there's residency programs to get you into internal medicine, pediatrics, surgery, uh, various specialties like that. Uh, and then uh, after you do those three to five-year training programs, uh, fellowship, and that's when an internal medicine doctor can train to become an infectious disease doctor. A pediatrician can be trained as an infectious disease, a pediatric infectious disease doctor. Uh, OBGYNs have their own infectious disease specialty. Um, and the fellowships usually run two to three years or longer if uh, one gets involved in basic research. Excellent. So I want, let's start talking about the virus now. We, we want to cover as much as possible. Just give us uh, an introduction to the Ebola virus. Uh, people that listen to our show, we've talked about viruses in general before, and we've done some specials on the SARS virus and a number of other viruses that have come around over the years. Give us a definition of the Ebola virus. Well, uh, viruses basically are uh, rudimentary forms of life that have genetic material surrounded by a protein coating, uh, and perhaps an envelope of uh, other material to protect all of the uh, inside components. Uh, viruses are, are uh, classified broadly into DNA viruses, so their genetic material is like our genetic material. 
where RNA viruses like HIV and as it happens, uh, uh, the Marburg virus, uh, sorry, the Ebola virus um, and the closely related Marburg virus. So what has to happen is that uh, in order for these uh, RNA viruses to, to uh, grow or replicate, they have to turn their, their RNA into DNA then they can replicate, and then the DNA gets turned back into RNA. So it's a little bit more complicated chemically, um, but uh, the, uh, the, the, the basic uh, structure of these viruses um, are, are quite similar. Okay, we talk about, uh, a lot of people use the word infectious and contagious. For me, something when we use the word infectious means how uh, virile it is. In other words, how strong it is, how, how a minimal number of viruses in a body can do a maximum number of harm. And that would be something that's infectious and highly infectious. But contagious, to me, is something that transmits from one person to another. How do you define the difference between infectious and contagious? And also, where do you put the Ebola virus in the spectrum of all the viruses we've seen or bacteria we've seen over the millennia of the human species? Well, the, the, um, uh, th that's a, a good way to, uh, to approach an infectious disease. How um, bad off is a person with a given number of uh, invading particles, whether they be bacteria, viruses, fungus, or... Um, or parasites, uh, how how much damage these uh, these microorganisms can do, um, and that's one way to look at in infectiousness. But that also implies how easy or difficult it might be to uh, to get these uh, uh, microorganisms uh, in the first place. Um, there are some viruses that are extraordinarily um, uh, contagious in terms of. Uh, how easy it is to get the infection. Influenza, for example, is one of them. Uh, measles, uh, uh, chickenpox, those are the kind of viruses that um, uh, it's very easy to, um, to get. And in the old days before uh, chickenpox vaccination, parents used to bring their kids over to a house where someone, where another kid had uh, chickenpox and uh, let them play together in, ho in hopes that their, their kids would get it because it's much better to get chickenpox as a little kid than it is as an adult. Um, now, when we get back to the Ebola virus, um, it, is, uh, it is contagious, but it's not that contagious. And <clears throat> one of the reasons is that in contrast to influenza, for example, where it can, you, a person can spread it a day or two before they actually get sick, uh, people have to actually have symptoms, whether it's fever or gastrointestinal symptoms or something else. They actually have to be sick in order to have enough virus uh, in their secretions, and whether that's sweat or vomit or uh, stool, urine, that kind of thing. That's one of the reasons why the, the nurse who flew from Dallas to Cleveland uh, and then Cleveland back to Dallas and got sick the next day, people even sitting next to her in the airplane never got sick. Uh, so the contact wasn't enough. And even if they uh, had contact with her secretions, uh, she, had a no, she did not have virus uh, present because she wasn't ill uh, so that no one would get sick from that.
So in your in your opinion right now, the Ebola virus is highly infectious but moderately contagious? Uh, with those definitions that you gave earlier on, that's, uh, that's a good way to look at it. And partly because, uh, at least, and we're going to get into the transmission at this moment, the ones that you mentioned were usually airborne. You can cough and somebody could get something, but in this particular case, we don't see that as of yet. So uh, let's go through a process right now. People are walking on the street uh, uh, or in houses or somewhere or on an airplane or something. How is the virus actually transmitted? Well, it's transmitted by a person getting virus um, either through breaks in the skin or in mucosa, which are the lining of the nose, the eyes, the mouth. Um, and uh, so if someone touches, uh, is cleaning up uh, vomitus, for example, that's uh, on the floor around the toilet, uh, and gets the virus on their hand, and they don't wash their hand really well, or there's a little cut around the nail or somewhere else on the skin, the virus can get into the body that way. And once it gets into the body, then it can cause infection. But there's no evidence that uh, it's, it's carried through the air so that people can't breathe in the virus um, and get sick. Um, and if the virus actually sits on unbroken, healthy skin, there's no evidence that that's a danger either. But most people have little breaks in their skin around their nails, or they may have uh, dry skin from the dry air, and there may be microscopic breaks in, so, in the skin. So it's difficult to know for sure uh, how healthy any individual area of skin might be uh, when, when discussing whether Ebola can be uh, transmitted through that particular skin. So I think the thing that most people are concerned about are at least when I talk to people, is doorknobs, toilet seats, and countertops. If a, well, if a the virus, virus gets there, how do, uh, is it contagious? Well, the virus, if, if uh, the material that it was tr transmitted in dries, uh, it, the virus only is alive for several hours. So it, um, you know, it, it depends. Hopefully, um, Again, we're talking about secretions. Uh, so uh, after the people uh, uh, use the bathroom, for example, good hand washing is important. And this gets back to very basic um, things that we have to deal with with common cold, with influenza. And it does work for Ebola. If you wash your hands really well, you're not going to be contaminating your area. Now, if, if you're sick and in the hospital, um, uh, that's the, you know, that's a different, uh, story. People who are that sick, uh, are unable to take care of these activities of daily living, um, and therefore have other people doing it for them. Uh, but when you talk about doorknobs and phones and kitchen counters and stuff, we're talking about people who are ambulatory and, and able to take care of themselves. It's important for them to, uh, uh, take care of their hygiene and, and understand what good hygiene consists of, and, and in large part, that's washing your hands. So obviously, uh, trying to be in the best of health at all times and making sure your immune system is good, uh, that gives you your best chance. Can pets, can pets uh, transmit it? Uh, it's a good, uh, a good question. Um, in terms of animals, uh, we know that the reservoir for Ebola are fruit, fruit bats. Uh, so they can get it. The interesting thing is why they don't get sick. Uh, we can talk about that later if you'd like. 
Um, but uh, fruit bats carry it. And uh, serologically, I believe there was one study in dogs that showed that dogs had some antibodies uh, but didn't get sick. Uh, but there's never been any evidence that um, that pets like dogs and cats can give the disease to anyone. Uh, oh, the other group of animals that does get the disease and that it actually kills them are uh, non-human primates, uh, various uh, monkey species. Mm. Can it can it be avoided or prevented? Can you avoid or prevent an infection other than the things that we talked about? Uh, well, that's where protective, uh, personal protective equipment comes into into play. If you have a sick person in front of you and you're a healthcare provider, that's the way you prevent it. Um, and we're going uh, to talk so, about that in a in a little while. Uh, new- uh, yeah. So it's 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 basically avoiding contact with uh, material that we know can carry the virus. Um, and and again, just because somebody is from Liberia and they have a fever. It doesn't mean that they have Ebola. They could have typhoid fever. They could have malaria. They could have tuberculosis. They could have influenza, or they could have the common cold. They could have uh, any one of a number of things uh, other than Ebola. So just because someone's from uh, West Africa doesn't uh, give them the diagnosis of Ebola exclusively. All right. So now we're now we're just walking around somewhere and uh, we come in contact with someone and suddenly symptoms start in us. What are the initial symptoms that that uh, we should look for as someone that might contract that disease? Not necessarily from the point of view of a physician or a nurse, but just as a person that suddenly isn't feeling well. What are the initial symptoms? Sure. Usually uh, Ebola usually starts as a uh, sudden onset of a fever. And then typical influenza-like symptoms of muscle aches and pains and headache. Um, several days later, um, uh, vomiting and diarrhea can develop. Uh, but the initial symptoms pretty much are uh, uh, fever, can go up to 102, 103 degrees, um, uh, headache and uh, muscle aches, feeling uh, flu-like symptoms. And when should one seek help? <laughs> You know, a lot of people get, as you said before, you could have a common cold or something else. When should one seek help, aside from the panic that we're going through right now? So uh, now I think that um, people can self-triage themselves a a little bit. So um, I've heard stories of somebody getting a fever and a headache, um, and they went to work with someone whose friend sat next to somebody who ended up sitting next to somebody who had Ebola <laughs> the next day on an airplane, and now all of a sudden they have Ebola and they're, and they're uh, in a state of high anxiety. Um, that's totally not appropriate. Um, what we need to do is, when we get sick, is say, well, where have our contacts been over the last um, 21 days? And uh, it, it would be extraordinary for anybody to have come into contact with uh, someone who had symptoms of Ebola and actually had Ebola and they were walking around. I don't think that's uh, happening too much now. I think uh, uh, you know people were smart enough and, uh, and there's enough information out there that if you've been to West Africa in 20, within 21 days of that last exposure, you develop these symptoms, it's time to get checked out. 
Um, but if there's no contact with sick people that actually have Ebola, then there's no, there's no risk. I remember always hearing the story, all that glitters isn't gold, so we could say all that is fever isn't Ebola, right? Absolutely, and, and the vast majority, if, like I said earlier, 99-plus percent of uh, these cases will not uh, involve Ebola at all. So a person goes to the hospital because, or their clinic or somewhere else because they did feel that they were in contact with someone who's been in Liberia or, or Sierra Leone, and they start having some of these symptoms. They go to a hospital. What do they expect in terms of a diagnosis? How is the Ebola actually diagnosed? Okay, you're, th- th- I'm glad you asked that question because uh, that's the paradigm of business as usual. And what we have now is a modification of that so that when a person develops uh, flu-like symptoms and uh, fever, uh, first of all, in, in Santa Barbara, the most common diagnosis at this point, this time of year, is going to be influenza. Um, and that needs to be evaluated, no question. But rather than uh, pick up and go to urgent care or to your private doctor or to the emergency room, what everyone is recommending now is to call public health, Santa Barbara Public Health Department, um, and tell them the story. I just got back from Liberia, and it's been a week, and now I have a high fever. They will then mobilize a public health department team that will mobilize the ambulance services that will take you to the appropriate place. Uh, the last thing you want to do is to be walking through uh, public buildings, especially doctor's offices and offices like Kaiser or Sansom or, uh, that have multiple doctor's offices, multiple waiting rooms, uh, because you're going to end up shutting down the building and potentially uh, impacting the health of uh, the healthcare provision for hundreds, if not thousands of people. Uh, over time, even so, it's very important to um, to try to be responsible about this and get the initial telephone uh, triage by the by a professional done to see if there's a real uh, likelihood that this uh, problem that you're having is Ebola. And just just to be clear, probably all around the country right now, the CDC and the president and uh, the AMA, a number of people are putting together programs, uh, we don't want everyone to call Santa Barbara. They, they should call their, their <laughs> public health wherever they are, at, most likely. But I think that's a great, uh, that's a great piece of uh, information that everyone should have rather than just going to the hospital, call public health, because everybody's getting geared up for this and having answers. So wherever you are, you, and probably you should find that number out now rather than waiting until you do have the fever. So again, yeah, to cl- so, go ahead. To, to clarify that, uh, every locale is going to be a little bit different. And I, uh, yeah, I was speaking for Santa Barbara. Some locales, they may have a different uh, uh, triage program. Uh, but what we found is going to be most effective here in Santa Barbara will, will be to uh, not, you know, not go to these different offices, emergency rooms, for example, first, but have somebody know what's going on before you go someplace so that you can be taken to the right facility and have the right resources available at the time. But each locale may differ. So it's, and that kind of thing will be 
in the press, in the newspapers, radio, TV, uh, for each locale. When you get to the hospital and they put you in a bed, finally, uh, you, you would expect uh, what kind of things are they going to do right away to support you and to also make the diagnosis? What are the things that will be done when somebody shows up in a hospital and they actually do have or potentially have the Ebola virus? What can they expect when they get to the hospital? So when someone gets to the hospital, if our uh, algorithm works properly, what will happen is that they will be uh, escorted to a uh, an isolation facility where everybody is dressed up in uh, what looks like hazmat suits, um, and and again, that's for their protection and not be able to spread any potential virus. Tests will be done, and like I said, there are alternative diagnoses. So. Um, one of the ways, uh, common ways that uh, this is being dealt with is that not every laboratory test uh, that we have available in the main lab will be available, but we'll have a mini lab at the bedside of patients so that certain things can be evaluated. And we'll be looking for malaria and typhoid and influenza and, and other diseases uh, with testing because that's just as important to, if, if this is not does not turn out to be Ebola, and the, this this blood will be done at a, uh, tested at a regional lab for Ebola. Um, we need to come up with an alternative diagnosis, and we have rapid testing that we will know within an hour or two whether it's influenza uh, or another diagnosis. Um, and then, uh, depending on how sick the person is, um, various things get done. They'll probably get oxygen. Uh, hooked up to monitors, um, and uh, the best of intensive care that um, modern medicine has to offer will be uh, utilized in these um, intensive care units. So let's now talk about the course of the infection while someone is in the hospital. What we see now is there's really uh, two courses. Either you survive or you die. And it seems like the uh, the possibility of death. Uh, I've read some statistics. Sometimes it could be up to ninety percent. What do, what does uh, a person and a family have to look for in terms of the course of the disease in a hospital or in a well, isolation ward? Yeah, there's no question that the mortality from this epidemic is uh, is appreciable, and the, it was thought initially there was about a fifty percent mortality, and that's been revised upward to about seventy percent. Um, what happens uh, is that there's a progression of symptoms, and it's interesting that the symptoms are related to uh, the amount of virus that's produced, but a lot of the things that happen to people uh, are related to a massive immune reaction to all of these virus particles um, and uh, things like uh, what we call capillary leak syndrome, where uh, the uh, fluid in the blood. Um, and in the capillaries, just oozes out into the tissues, and people develop fluid in their lungs, in their skin. Um, and uh, later on, um, with uh, as organs are damaged, kidney and liver, uh, people uh, bleed, and that's where the hemorrhagic fever comes in. That's usually uh, later in the like the second week of uh, infection. And after about six days, people can start to improve, but not always. And if uh, their immune response is really brisk and their body is not 
uh, able to um, control viral uh, growth, um, the most people, if they're going to end up dying, do, do so within about six to sixteen days, up to about two weeks or so. While while they're in the hospital, you know, we're t we're hearing about dealing with the waste products, the vomiting and the diarrhea. Many of us have had uh, stomach flus or food poisonings, and we have a, a couple of hours of vomiting and you know maybe a day or so of diarrhea. This is this is different, isn't it? Well, it'll be uh, last for much longer, and uh, uh, there can be a lot of volume for uh, uh, losses through the through the intestines. No question about it. So, when they're in the hospital, aside from supportive care, uh, as you said, intravenous fluids, and uh, you know, keeping the electrolytes together, and making sure the oxygen is okay, and supporting the uh, different systems. Is there any actual treatment that we have yet? Well, there's nothing for sure. There are uh, a couple of uh, experimental drugs. There's some antibodies. Some people have been uh, given serum from patients who survived. Uh, the problem is, is that no one knows what what is going to work. Um, and and uh, there have been some very uh, uh, intense ethic uh, discussions about the ethics of studying uh, these new drugs in Africa itself, or do you study it in patients who have gone to Spain, to England, to the United States, for example, uh, where there are many fewer patients like that, so it's hard to get any kind of scientific uh, um, uh, comparative trials going. Uh, but the uh, issue of the ethics of uh, using uh, experimental drugs uh, in these um, uh, poorer countries is um, uh, taking a lot of attention. Yeah, we should. Uh, we had a, a show with Dr. Sharon Hartline, who was a ethicist, uh, and maybe we should have her back on the show on a panel talking about these things. There is something called ZMAP. Is that what you? One of the things you were talking about in terms That's of a potential treatment. That's correct, and um, a few people have gotten it. It's made by a very small company, um, and um, there's not many details available about it, but one of the problems they're having is gearing up industrial-grade production to make enough of it to give to the number of people that you need to give it to to do a, a study. Um, that's what the, one of the problems of the, that these small startup companies have. Do you think, you know, I remember when the HIV AIDS virus came out, there was an amazing amount of knowledge learned from this virus. Uh, and to the point where uh, now AIDS, HIV is not as life-threatening anymore. It's almost just a chronic disease like hypertension or diabetes. Uh, do you think that at some point we'll learn things from this virus that's going to give us new insights, uh, possibly a vaccine for this or cure? Well, I think there's a lot to learn uh, about the immunology of this virus. Um, uh, as I alluded to earlier, why fruit uh, bats don't get sick? Uh, and it probably has to do with uh, modulation of, by the virus for their immune system. Um, there, there's always something to learn. Uh, the unfortunate thing is, is that this virus, as you mentioned in the beginning, uh, has been known since the 1970s. 
Um, and very little work has been done on it because uh, the, the areas that, of the world where it's infected are really not markets for selling drugs, and there's very little money in, uh, in actually studying this. So, uh, you know, if this virus establishes a foothold in the United States, which would be extraordinarily unlikely, um, it's going to be hard to uh, see how that there's going to be a lot of money put into to research um, to get the answers as fast as we did with HIV, for example. So third world countries uh, have to bring diseases to first world countries before they can get vaccines. Uh, unfortunately, uh, I think that's true. Hmm. So let's let's talk a little bit. Uh, Christina, is there anything that you are concerned about right now before we move forward into some other things? Um, yeah, I, I mean, I'm assuming, Dr. Sugar, that, uh, of course, there's no vaccination for the Ebola virus. That's correct. Not yet. And uh, that's something that's uh, being uh, looked into. Mm -hmm. uh, but there are... It's it's a very difficult topic, especially when you get vi viruses that modulate the immune system. Mm -hmm. The best example is HIV, where a couple of uh, multiple different vaccines have been looked at. Some of them actually made the disease worse. So um, it's not just as easy as identifying proteins on the virus and making uh, the suitable vaccine out of those. Uh, the underlying immunology really has to be understood before uh, vaccines can really proceed with any likelihood of success. Mm -hmm. um, so, so really, at this point in time, for the general public, it's uh, what I'm hearing is is really about you know keeping the immune system strong, keeping healthy, eating well, keeping high you know good hygiene. I mean, I, I work with a lot of kids every day and I see, you know, their hands go in their mouth and you know, they're playing Adults with everything. Adults do that and, too, so. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. I've seen that too. <laughs> so, so if, for example, if someone does have the virus and um, they do, for example, have whatever on their hands from, you know, any kind of mucus on their hands and they touch an escalator going up. Um, and then a child comes along and touches that same escalator. You're saying that there was like a, a is a several hours that that virus will stay alive? That That's true, but nobody really knows. Just because it's staying alive uh, doesn't mean that 100% of the virus in that material is staying alive. Mm. Um, and, it does, and it gives no indication of how much virus is in there to begin with. And we really don't know how infective that particular exposure might be. I see. Uh, it may be very close to zero. Mm -hmm. But, you know, if you're a parent and you see that your kid did this, uh, you know, it's, it's going to be a very uh, stress-producing event. <laughs> <laughs> Don't touch anything! <laughs> Kids are going to be walking around in hazmat suits. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but on the other hand, kids need to be able to play in dirt and get their immune systems uh, up right. and running. Yes, yes. Oh, so, let, so, Alan, right now you're part of a program here in Santa Barbara to develop protocols uh, or to improve protocols. And the CDC just came out with their newest protocols today, in fact. Uh, what are you doing to help the hospital prepare and the community? And I would assume that 
just like you're doing it here, someone in Kansas, someone in Florida, someone in Wisconsin is doing the same thing. What's what's going on right now, and how are you preparing hospitals to change protocols and get people up to speed? Well, we've been working on this for uh, about a month now. Uh, my partner is, is working primarily with a hospital. I'm working primarily um, along with a, another infectious disease doc at Sansom to, to deal with the outpatient issues. Uh, and we meet to together to coordinate outpatient, inpatient, uh, and then also with public health uh, to get all of the stakeholders in this uh, on the same page. And then we, we uh, get out the same message. Uh, but but uh, like I said, we've been working on this, and I'm happy to say that the plans that we put into place, um, uh, even as uh, early as uh, three to four weeks ago, uh, anticipated the latest um, CDC recommendations. So we had been doing that, uh, what they recommend now, uh, from the get-go. And one of the things that um, uh, that is very clear uh, from the experience uh, in a lot of different fields, not only in medicine, is that it's very important to uh, do dry runs uh, of, uh, of the system to make sure that there are no gaps, that everyone knows the responsibilities, that there are no undue delays, and that everybody can kind of develop the muscle memory so that when the real thing happens, uh, we're ready to go. And, th and that's uh, where we are. So every day that we don't have to deal with an actual patient, we get uh, closer and closer to a, a goal of perfection, real, realizing that we never will hit perfection, but we can be pretty good at, at what we do. So how are the nurses and doctors uh, dealing with these protocols? Uh, everybody's uh, very uh, accepting of them. They have input. Uh, we get uh, uh, input from all of the different stakeholders who are going to be using these uh, uh, protocols, and uh, we, we've been running through how to put on and take off the protective equipment um, and going through step-by-step uh, step when a patient is first identified and how to get them from point A to point B uh, with the minimal disruption of uh, the usual uh, workflow. How do you how do you think this country and the rest of the world are dealing with this epidemic? <clears throat> when I look at uh, the statistics, and we see X number of thousand people dying, and then we hear from people that have doctors and nurses that have come back from there saying it's multiple times more than that, but just nobody wants to talk about it. And so it seems like uh, the information coming to us is uh, not always accurate, but we're all reacting to that information. How should we be dealing with this as a country? That's a very difficult question. I'm, I don't know that I have the answer for it. This is going to take um, a lot of money. It's going to take a lot of dedicated individuals doing uh, the work they need to do. Uh, but more importantly, this is a symptom uh, that far transcends medicine and uh, is dealing with uh, the kind of uh, life that people are living in uh, these very underdeveloped countries with very poor infrastructure um, in anything and, uh, and governments that are unable to respond uh, to the public good uh, when necessary. 
Uh, I mean, you can look at the response uh, that we've had so far in the United States, which has really been suboptimal. Uh, and we supposedly are uh, at the top of the heap. Uh, so when you look at these poor African countries, um, uh, there's, this is not really unexpected and uh, not surprising at all. I, I listen to a lot of people that say, you know, when uh, people in authority come out and give a talk and give us information and we believe that information and then suddenly three or four or five or days or a week later, we're getting information that contradicts what we first heard. How do we believe, I guess I'm getting into more ethical and philosophical and political questions, but how should we discern uh, the information that comes to us? It, uh, this is difficult because you have to evaluate where the, you know, why there's a change in uh, the message. Uh, it could be due to legitimate increases or changes in understanding of the problem at hand, um, or it could be um, the uh, in initial message was uh, not entirely true, either deliberately or by accident, um, and th then the message has to change if uh, people were not dealing with, uh, with an honest evaluation of what's going on. But a lot of the changes are basically in response to um, um, incremental increases in our knowledge and uh, a, a proper adjusting to, to that new information. How many people do you believe have actually died from this virus? In this current epidemic, probably um, it, it, it's probably getting close to 10,000 and probably... Uh, depending on, on how many cases have not been reported. It's difficult to really know. Uh, it could go way beyond that. But, I mean, we're right in the midst of it. So, you know, giving an interim number right now is, uh, is not that meaningful. There's going to be tens, of, if not hundreds of thousands of people affected by this uh, when all is said and done. Uh, an important part that's <clears throat> that we need to know about is somebody... Uh, is fortunate enough to survive. They get to a center that goes through good protocols. They get the right treatment. They had a good immune system to begin with, uh, and everything works out, and they are back to health. Are they still contagious? Uh, no, they're not. They're, the virus is gone, uh, although there's some evidence that uh, the virus can persist at low levels in semen for... Uh, a couple of months after people recover. Uh, but nobody knows what the significance of that is. But uh, by all intents and purposes, uh, you know, once somebody recovers, uh, they no longer need to be in isolation and they can uh, participate fully uh, in doing whatever they want to do. And do they have uh, antibodies now? Are they now immune? Could they be people that can go back and work in centers where people are showing up? Presumably, that's the case. I mean, if you get exposed to a uh, huge inocula of virus, large numbers of virus, it's conceivable that you could overpower the, uh, the otherwise successful immune response that the person developed earlier. But by and large, uh, and as I said earlier, they used the serum from one of the doctors that, that recovered in some of the subsequent cases. So 
that kind of antibody uh, sounds like it's protective. Uh, but we don't know. For, do we know how long they are? Uh, you know, many of the vaccines are 10 years or 15 years. Some are lifetime. Do we, I guess we don't know that yet, do we? No, we don't. So we've got diagnosis, treatment, and containment. What happens to uh, people that have died? Is there anything that we need to know about dealing with the body of the person that's been infected? Are they still infectious? Do they have to be uh, treated in a different way than somebody that died of heart disease? Absolutely. The, uh, and that's where a uh, big problem is in Africa due to the funeral practices in Africa where my understanding is that family come by and actually touch the body. Um, and that's where a lot of people are getting infected. So that burial in, uh, uh, in uh, Africa and I think elsewhere uh, is uh, dependent on either cremation or, or burial in hermetically sealed caskets um, mm -hmm. because the body is definitely infectious. Uh, also, just as something that popped into my mind now, when we talk about uh, bodily fluids, uh, I think an important thing is uh, breast milk. What about nursing mothers? Uh, that I don't know, but if someone who was sick with Ebola, they're probably not going to be making much milk and are going to be pretty sick. So it may be a moot point. Well, I was thinking about the one that recovers. Uh, just like you said, there might be some semen. Uh, uh, the virus is still positive in the semen for up to two, three months, maybe. Uh, breast milk, should we be concerned about that uh, if somebody does recover? That I don't know. Um, hmm. And I'm not, it, it may have been looked at, but I haven't seen any information on that. So, Alan, in the big picture right now, uh, in preparing for this talk and this show, is there anything that you wanted to discuss with us and give information to us that we haven't covered yet? Well, I think it's very important in situations like this where the media has gone um, absolutely uh, out of control to put things in perspective. And uh, more people are going to die just th uh, this year or e even in the next six months of influenza, of cigarette smoking, of auto accidents, of pertussis, um, of measles in unvaccinated people. Uh, we, the list goes on and on. Um, and it so far dwarfs the risk that we are facing uh, in the United States uh, for the average citizen uh, that it makes no sense to, uh, to go crazy uh, with... Uh, all sorts of precautions that are totally unwarranted. There were instances of schools being closed in uh, Ohio for really dubious reasons. Um, and all we can hear is that uh, it's an overabundance of caution, which I'm not even sure what that means. But the, we have to put things in perspective Realizing that you know life is, uh, is has a certain amount of risk every day with various things, but if you if you really want to get scared about uh, getting things, um, if you're unimmunized, influenza is a good one, um, and uh, uh, 
even getting hit by lightning is probably is definitely more likely than uh, than coming into contact with an Ebola case. Well, it sounds like we're safe here in Santa Barbara. <laughs> I'm moving to Santa zone. Barbara. <laughs> <laughs> we could use a little lightning here. Christina, is there any question that you have that you think that people may want to know no, for Dr. I, Sugar? Um, I'm very grateful for that last comment, Dr. Sugar. I, I, I think that puts some of us at ease <laughs> that we can continue to move through life and, and uh, every day and not uh, live in fear. And and I I do believe you know I, I come from the entertainment industry and I I do believe that those movies that they make kind of heighten everything just that bit more. You know, <laughs> we're going to turn into zombies. You know, next thing you know, people are watching these movies. You know, from from the past, which is all about these Ebola viruses. <laughs> exactly. We're speaking with Dr. Alan Sugar, uh, internal medicine doctor and a specialist in infectious diseases, who has. Uh, enlightened us today on the Ebola virus and the panic and the potential outbreaks in this country and the rest of the world. Dr. Sugar, uh, do you have a health tip for us? Well, I think that um, as I've seen things develop over the the last uh, 10 years and uh, the pros and the cons and the actual effects um, on individual people, um, usually uh, to, the, to their detriment, I would really strongly recommend to uh, listeners to, uh, to consider and or reconsider the, the ultimate role of uh, vaccination and immunization in uh, maintaining our health. I mean, the United States of all countries is really fortunate to have the uh, advantage of uh, a whole slew of vaccines uh, that are safe and more importantly, well, just as importantly, are effective at preventing uh, illnesses that otherwise uh, kill children and uh, kill adults. Uh, and we have the ability to, uh, to, to obviate uh, the impact of those diseases with simple vaccines that uh, when the evidence is looked at in a dispassionate scientific way, uh, have very little um, uh, general toxicity to the, the average person who's going to get them. So that's what I would recommend uh, based on a long uh, uh, series of uh, experiences uh, in my career. As a specialist in infectious diseases, very nice. I'm grateful to our very special guest, Dr. Alan Sugar, for sharing his wisdom and expertise with us on this a very important topic. I'd like to thank all of my teachers and my healers for allowing me to be on my journey. And I look forward to being with you all again, and Christina and Segovia and Yoga Hub, as we travel through another quadrant of the healthcare galaxy on Magical Medical Tour. And until that time when we meet again. Thank you, Alan, very much. And I wish you all optimal health. Thank you, Dr. Alan Sugar. Thank you so much. And we're very grateful that you've taken the time out of your day um, to share with us your expertise. And uh, Dr. Glenn Wilbin, thank you for another great show. And of course, we'd like to thank each and every one of you for joining us in this new platform of education and information. We're grateful for your continuous support, and we look forward to hearing your feedback on how we can serve you better. You can connect with Dr. Glenn Woolman through his website, 
glennwoman.com, where you can learn and should learn about his metaphor, square breath. Help keep you calm during all this um, fear, <laughs> this time of fear. And if you would like to connect with Dr. Alan Sugar, please... Um, Please be sure to make a comment or ask your question via the website, or you can give us a call at Let's Talk, 818-LET'S-TALK, and we will be sure to forward, you, forward him your question or comment. And again, if you give us a call, it can be at any time, and we will get back to you. So until next time, namaste. That was easy. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. Yes. Thank you so much. Wow. Okay. My pleasure. It was fun. Okay. I'm taking off my latex gloves now. <laughs> 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 Alan, I think that was well done. A lot of good information that came out very clear and very simple <clears throat> and easy. Yes. Did you feel okay with that? Oh, yeah. Very nice. Yeah, it was very clear. So easy to understand. Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah, my pleasure. It's uh, they're, they're tough topics. See, uh, and to everyone else, I wish you all <laughs> optimal health. Thank you so much, Kathy, for another great show. Wow. You guys are so welcome. <laughs> Thanks for having me back. I'll see you in 15 years. Uh, <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> And of course, thank you, Glenn, Dr. Glenn Woolman, for hosting such a wonderful show. Um, and of course, to each and every one of you for joining us in this new platform of education and information. We're grateful for your continuous support, and we look forward to hearing your feedback on how we can serve you better. If you would like to connect with Kathy Groover, please do so at her website, thealternativemedicinecabinet.com. The Alternative medicinecabinet.com. And of course, if you'd like to connect with our Dr. Glenn Woolman, you can do so through his website, glennwoolman.com, where we encourage you to learn about his metaphor, square breath. Again, we're always grateful for any feedback, comments, suggestions. Please give us a call at 818-LET'S-TALK. 818-LET'S-TALK. Until next time, namaste. Namaste. 